Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest is an important concept in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. We're introduced to the term in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, where we were at last time, where the word rest is used to refer to the life God wanted to give the Israelites in the promised land of Canaan. God had freed the Israelite people from almost 400 years of oppressive slavery in Egypt and then had Moses lead them across the Sinai Desert wilderness to the southern border of Canaan, the promised land. This was to be their new home, a, a land of rich abundance where they could live in freedom, unmolested by their enemies, a place to raise their families and build new lives for themselves as the people of God, a place of rest. That rest was a type or foreshadowing of the rest that Jesus Christ can give to a person, which has both a now and a then or a coming aspect to it. We can experience a life of rest now and eternal rest in heaven. It's important to understand that the term rest, it doesn't refer to sleep or the ceasing of activity. It refers to the quality of life that God gives us. Rest, as used here in the book of Hebrews, is really a synonym for salvation. Rest is the life that salvation creates in us. Salvation produces rest. Rest is the experiencing of salvation. Rest describes the life of peace and joy and wholeness that Jesus Christ can create in a person. And rest is also heaven. And heaven is not an experience of inactivity. It's not some celestial nap. Just the opposite. It will be the experience of a fullness of life that goes beyond our imagination. As we continue our study through the letter of Hebrews, picking up at the beginning of chapter 4, this section is really a continuation of what is talked about in the latter part of chapter 3, which is what we looked at last time. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. You may remember that at the, in the last section of chapter 3, where we were at last time, the author, he warns us to not follow the example of the Israelites who got rescued from Egyptian slavery under the leadership of Moses. They had hardened their hearts towards the Lord, turned a deaf ear to His counsel, constantly rebelled against the Lord's instructions, never trusted the Lord, always questioned His goodness and His intentions. Their hearts were never joined to the Lord. They never saw themselves as God's people. Rather than embracing this new life that God wanted to give them, they never let go of their old life and the way of thinking and acting that went with that old life. Their unbelief and their disobedience cut them off from the blessing of entering into the Lord's rest. The author, he continues with this same subject now in chapter 4, 
putting his focus on the importance of us, his readers, entering into the promised rest of God. He says here, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And that's very good news for us. In spite of the failure of the Israelites to enter into God's rest, the promise of entering his rest still remains open for us. In other words, their failure has not removed the opportunity for us to enter into the rest that God has promised. I remember back in grade school days that punishment was sometimes handed out to our entire class, even though there was only a couple of people who were guilty of the crime. You might have had similar experience in grade school. The teacher would say something like, because Johnny and Larry plugged all of the toilets in the boys' restroom, you're all going to have to stay in the classroom during recess for the rest of the week. I thought that was a terrible injustice. That we all had to suffer the consequences for Johnny and Larry's crime. But such was the life that we lived under the tyranny of the dictator, Mr. T. I have some very good news for you. That is not the way the Lord works with his promise of entering his rest. Even though the Israelites failed to enter because of their unbelief and disobedience, that does not exclude you and I the opportunity of entering God's rest. Sister, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. This exhortation that he's giving us here, it's similar to what is given to us in Hebrews 3.12. You might remember when he wrote, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We don't want to miss out on entering the Lord's rest. So in verse 2, it says, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. We have heard the good news just like they did, although the content of that good news is different. The good news that they heard was that the Lord promised to deliver them from slavery and lead them into a land of rest if they would put their trust in Him and follow Him. And the good news that we have heard is that the Lord has promised to deliver us from slavery to sin and death and lead us into a life of rest now and forever if we will put our trust in Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and follow him. But the message they heard was of no value to them. The message, the good news, was of no value. It was of no use, no help to them because they didn't have faith in the message. They didn't believe it and act on it. They didn't put their trust in the Lord and follow Him. It's not enough to simply hear the message. It's not enough to simply be informed about the promises of God. It's not enough to have heard the message, the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know the story of Jesus. The message needs to be taken hold of and acted upon in faith. The message requires a response. The message, if really believed, will change the course of a person's life. 
Here's an illustration uh, about this. Imagine, while traveling along some road, if I came to a sign that said, bridge out ahead, take alternate route. But I proceeded straight on ahead, not changing my course, because I didn't believe the message on the sign. Well, then I would be running the risk of finding myself dead in the bottom of a canyon up ahead, wouldn't I? On the other hand, if I believed the message on the sign, then I would take that alternate route as directed and presumably arrive at my destination in safety. Someone might argue, but what if the sign isn't true? Assume for a moment the sign might not be true. The smart thing for me to do would be to investigate, to see if the sign is true or not. The most foolish thing for me to do would be to simply charge ahead and ignore the message on the sign. Maybe you have chosen to do that, to ignore the sign that the Lord has posted. You've not done an investigation into the truth of the sign. You've just chosen to ignore it. You're headed for a cliff. Turn back. Take the alternate route that has been offered to you, Jesus Christ. If you'll investigate to see if the sign is true or not, you'll find that there is evidence enough to turn the direction of your life toward Jesus Christ. This brings to mind what is known as Pascal's Wager. The French mathematician, philosopher, and theologian of the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, presented an argument for believing in Christ that has come to be known as Pascal's Wager. It essentially goes like this. Considering the rewards and the consequences involved, it makes sense to choose to believe in Christ rather than not, because if Christ and the gospel are true, you gain heaven. And if it turns out that Christ is not true, you've lost very little. You have still lived a good moral life, and you have benefited from having the hope for a future in heaven. But if you choose not to believe in Christ, and he ends up being true, you will have forfeited your soul. The wise wager is to believe in Christ and follow him. Believe the warning sign about the bridge and take the alternate route. Verse 3 says, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. There's both a rest that we can enjoy right now in this life, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and there is a final rest that we will enter into at the end of this life. And remember, we're not talking about a long celestial nap. This rest is not inactivity. It is fullness of life. It is a coming homeness. It's a settled and secure soul of peace and joy in the midst of the surrounding chaos. It's a life of hope that is looking forward to a better country, to a city whose architect and builder is God, as it says in Hebrews 11.10. It is heaven itself. And how do we enter into this rest? By believing the good news, the message, the gospel. By believing in Jesus as the Christ who has secured this rest for us by his own death and resurrection. 
It says, and yet he, his works have been finished since the creation of the world, talking about God. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. This is a kind of a parenthetical explanation about God's own rest that's inserted into the middle of the author's main thought, which he will pick up again in verse 6. God has, in one sense, he says, finished his work since the creation of the world and is now at rest. And he directs our attention back to the account of creation in Genesis, where it tells us that on the seventh day God rested from all his work. Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. When it says that God rested, it doesn't mean that he entered into a state of idleness or inactivity or indifference at that point. God has clearly remained active. But there is a sense in which the activity of the initial creation has ceased. We don't fully understand all of what that means. What we know is that the unique burst of creating that took place in those first moments of the formation of our world is no longer occurring in the same way. In John 5.17, Jesus tells us that God the Father has always been at his work to this very day. So in one sense, God has been at rest since the creation, but in another sense, he has always been at work. The author picks up in verse 6 his thought. He says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day. So here in verse 6, he states that the rest of God is still open and available for people to enter. And this is the same thing he said in verse 2. And then second, he states that those who were given the good news before didn't enter into God's rest. Now, the reason given in verse 2 for them not entering was that they didn't combine what they heard with faith. They didn't believe the message and didn't act on it. Now he adds that the reason they didn't enter was because of their disobedience. Well, you might remember that we saw this same point being made in the latter part of chapter 3, that unbelief and disobedience are connected with one another. They're really manifestations of the same problem. Real belief produces obedience. Obedience occurs in the life of the person who has real belief. James, he elaborates on this in his letter in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we won't go there, but if you're interested, you can flip over to James at another time and read what James has to say about faith and deeds. But he says, God again set a certain day, calling it today, this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
So even though the Israelites in the days of Moses failed to enter into God's rest, God established another day, calling it today, when he again is extending this invitation to enter into his rest. Well, what does today mean here? It means today. Now, this moment that we are in, right now is the time God is extending an invitation to us through Jesus Christ to come and be reconciled with him and receive salvation to enter into his rest. Second Corinthians 6, 2, Paul said, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Maybe you've been putting off when you will put your faith in Jesus Christ and start following him. Thinking, I'll do it tomorrow. That tomorrow might not ever come. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Why would you want to delay entering into the blessing of God's rest anyway? It's a much better life than the life outside of his rest. For if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8, God would not have spoken later about another day. So the author gives further support to his argument that the promise of entering into God's rest is still available and that this rest is much more than entering into the land of Canaan, actually. That that was just a picture or a type or a foreshadow of the true and full rest of God. He makes reference here, when the Israelites refused to go into the promised land after their explorers returned from exploring it, God declared that none of the people of that generation would enter the promised land. God had Moses lead those people back out into the desert wilderness where they then wandered for the next 40 years until all of the adults of that generation died except for Joshua and Caleb. We talked about this story last time. Uh, then at Moses' death, Joshua was given the responsibility to lead this new generation of people into the promised land. The author of Hebrews points out that the physical entry into the land of Canaan, though, was not the fulfillment of the promised rest of God. It is something far more significant. Another Joshua was coming who would lead God's people into his rest. Interestingly, the name Joshua is the Hebrew form of the Greek name Jesus. Do you remember that? Jesus Christ is the Joshua, the Yeshua, who was coming to lead his people into God's rest. He's the second Joshua. The real Joshua. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus, Yeshua, said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There remains then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. To enter into God's rest means to cease from one's own work, as God has ceased from his. 
There is a rest available to us now, which is a foretaste of the full rest that God has waiting for us. And as said before, the rest God has for us in this life, it's not a ceasing from activity. It's important that we not connect rest with sleeping. It's a different kind of rest that we're talking about. If that's what the rest was, it would not be very satisfying for us. In spite of what the sleep-deprived people among us might claim in the moment, we were created to create, to imagine, to make, to build, to express, to invent. It's part of our nature. It's part of what it means that we have been made in the image of God. What makes work drudgery is not the activity, but the meaninglessness of it. The fall of humanity cursed our work, making it a difficult toil. But Jesus Christ has redeemed work for us. When the new life of Jesus is born in us, our job, vocation, career, work, activity, chores, can be seen as a calling a mission, a ministry, an act of worship. As a follower of Jesus Christ, our life can take on an eternal significance in everything that we do. Even the most mundane tasks can be an act of worship. We can glorify Christ in it. We can represent Christ in it. Remember Colossians 3.23, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since we know that you, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. The rest the Lord gives us in this life is a reorientation of the motives and the attitudes behind our activity. It's a redirecting of the purpose for our life. It's a submission of our will to the Lord, a confidence in all of the sufficient love and power of God. It's a life filled with hope for a coming future better than anything that we can imagine. This is the rest that the Lord gives us in this life. And there's also the coming full rest the Lord promises to his people. Heaven. The eternal rest that we look forward to, again, it's not a ceasing of activity. It's not going to be this long heavenly snooze of nothingness. Instead, imagine doing what you are perfectly gifted for doing, that you have a deep passion for doing, that brings you huge joy when you do it, that is totally fulfilling and meaningful for you when you do it. I don't know what that is for you, but heaven is going to be like that multiplied many times over. Your life will be full, just bursting, overflowing with joy, always being completely fulfilled. That's heaven. That's the rest that God is giving us. Heaven will be the most joyful, fulfilling, invigorating experience you can imagine. And finally, verse 11 says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. In other words, 
He's saying make every effort to enter this rest of God. Why? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. Albert Moeller rightly said, only one thing can satisfy the restlessness of the human soul. The rest of God found in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for the promise of rest that you have for us in this life and in the life to come. I pray, God, that you would fill your people this morning with this rest, that we would experience this rest fully, Lord, in our lives as we walk with you. And it would give us hope as we look forward to this rest that we will finally get to experience and be part of in the next life. I pray for those here among us, Lord, who have been ignoring the sign to take the alternate route, to follow Christ, to not continue on the same path that they have been on, that today would be the day that they finally say, yes, I want to follow Christ. I believe and I want this rest. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they would open their life to you and allow you to come in and give them this new life of rest. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.